it's not that we were too much of a snob to do reality television. It was just we also were not good at that. And, and, and we're aware of that, right? There are scores of people in Los Angeles and New York who have done awesome reality shows that people love. And so it wasn't just like, oh, we want to make something fancier or higher brow. It was, that's not our superpower. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Okay, we are rolling uh, in the beautiful Santa Monica office of Boardwalk Pictures. We've got the two two men who, uh, I'm sure there's more than two, but the two who are you know, most central to the Boardwalk story. We have uh, Dane Lilligard on my left. We have Andrew Freed on my right. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so typically, uh, you know, listeners of the show know, we, we oftentimes talk about shows, but uh, we veered off a little bit lately, and we've been talking about businesses and trends and things that I find super interesting. And since it's my show, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> so here we are talking about a company uh, that has a lot of shows, yes. a lot of shows that our you know, listeners will know, um, but to me really represents something that's incredible that's happening in the industry over the past few years, which is sort of the transition from reality as a dirty four-letter word to high-end unscripted and the explosion um, of just shows that you can talk about in mixed company and uh, really just the evolution of, like I said, something that maybe you kind of felt a little bit dirty or I don't know, might make a lot of money, but you weren't, your parents weren't super proud of you to stuff that, you know, nets you James Beard Awards uh, and, you know, invitations to any restaurant in the world. Yes. Thank you. We're, and we're excited to speak to you about it. Um, and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, we, um, it was obviously by design, I'm sure, Andrew, right? Well, yes, sort of. honestly, it was very deliberate. Yeah. I think, you know, we started the company now 10 years ago. Um, I had produced a show called Iconoclast that was on the Sundance channel. That was really how I came up through the business. I, I worked at a company called Radical Media, um, and Iconoclast was one of the few shows that I had worked on there as a producer. Um, that was probably, it still is, the closest to what we do now. Iconoclast is a show, is a show that I would still pitch tomorrow. Um, if, if we came up with it or, or if the opportunity presented. At the time that Radical produced that and, and Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky were the directors of that show, just to have directors who are bona fide documentary filmmakers doing a cable television show was, was an odd thing. The, the way that that show was able to exist then was because it was fully paid for by Grey Goose. And so we didn't have to adhere to a lot of the television rules um, that were being formulated at that time around the world of unscripted programming. Um, so I personally, I can't speak for Dane, but I never learned any better, right? The, the, the TV that I was working on at that time before Boardwalk started was in that documentary television realm. 
But when we started the company and explicitly um, with the with the mission statement to produce high end premium uh, nonfiction stories, premium unscripted, for lack of a better description, at that time. Um, many people in the television establishment uh, thought that that was, there's no such thing, right? We want to do documentary television. And what we want to do is documentary television for the masses, right? So if you could look at a spectrum, on one side of the spectrum was reality shows, hugely successful at that time. We're going back to 2009, 2010, hugely successful. Honey Boo Boo, John and Kate Plus Eight, Duck Dynasty, The Kardashian. I mean, hugely successful and very much the direction that the business was moving in. Um, and then on the far opposite end of the spectrum is documentary, right? I look at Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky as part of that. Ken Burns, The Maisels, Errol Morris. Really, really hardcore documentary um, on the other end of the spectrum. So what I think we identified very early on was, and keep in mind this was right as 30 for 30s were starting on ESPN, and that was something that I was acutely aware of, where people were starting to want, they were craving this elevated, authentic storytelling. Reality shows are successful, but they're not authentic as we all know now. They're not real. They're actually quite not real. and documentaries were on the other side of the spectrum. So where in between those two could we be doing documentary as entertainment, something that is more for broad audiences, for many, many eyeballs? In an era before Netflix, when I would give that little speech to agents or producers or networks execs, network execs, they would look at me and say, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as documentary television. You got Grey Goose to pay for that Iconoclast for a few years, great, but maybe there's one series a year on PBS, but other than that, it just doesn't exist. I would love to say that, you know, I had the attitude of, well, just watch me. Um, But for us, it was the pendulum will swing back in our direction. Quality will never go out of style. There will always be a network that wants to do something that is nominated for an Emmy or something. And that's, it's not that, it's not that we were too much of a snob to do reality television. It was just, we also, also were not good at that. Yeah. Right. Other people did that better than we did. And, and, and we're aware of that, right? There are scores of people in Los Angeles and New York who have done awesome reality shows that people loved hit shows. The Kardashians is a, hit zeitgeist show, all the other shows that I referenced, I worked on one show for Bravo with a bunch of people who did that type of work, and they were so much better at it than than I was and so much better at it than we would be. And so it wasn't just like, oh, we want to make something fancier or higher brow. It was, that's not our superpower. What we think we could be really good at is telling these elevated stories Um, in a premium way that look beautiful, that still can be entertainment and appeal to a wide audience that is not sort of severe documentary on the other side of the spectrum. The short version of the story, I know we want to go longer than this, but, you know, to make a long story short, Netflix happened about five years into that trajectory. 
we set up Chef's Table with Netflix, which was their first unscripted original series. We did six episodes for them that released in 2015, which is not ancient history. Um, our agents at the time used to ask us about the cooking webisodes that we were making because there was no such thing as Netflix. We didn't know what that was going to be. But Chef's Table really kicked in the door. Chef's Table happened, and then as I recall, and I never fact-checked this, but Chef's Table happened in April, and then Making a Murderer came out that Christmas. Christmas you remember, right. everybody yeah. was watching Making a Murderer over that Christmas break. And I just anecdotally remember that when we came back from Christmas break and started talking about doing more chef's tables, it was a different world. Right. Well, let's reverse. Okay. So we're in 2015 or 20, 2015. Um, let's go back to 2010. You're forming the company uh, and, you know, you've come up with the speech that you just gave. And Dane, you're, you know, running more the business of this company, right? Or that's what you're charged to do. What was your, you know, your, I mean, your... My background was in commercial production. Okay. So everything I've done my whole life is very process-oriented. And it was always about executing on a creative that a director, in most cases, and that's important because that ended up being a huge piece of what made this company special, was our ability to work with director talent. That was pretty different from traditional television shows. But my background came from approaching each project as its own thing, lending a specific plan, a budget, a calendar, logistics, requirements, the execution piece of a director's vision, bringing that to fruition. And that's very much been, what is it, the right and left side of the brain for Andrew and I, which is... I knew I wasn't going to be the best creative storyteller in the world, but I knew that nobody did better in putting together those creative visions and translating it to the page of a budget and a calendar and crew and the resources that were required to execute it. So we we didn't really know at the time. We met, um, Andrew had formed the company, and I came to help on one of his first projects. And at the time, I was Thank a line God. producer on the project. And I thought it was going to be for a weekend. It was a weekend job. <laughs> yes. And the weekends. show turned out to be one year, and that was the conversation for a lifetime uh, with Demi Moore and Amanda Decadene, and, and I didn't leave for a year. Okay, well, let's talk about that, though, right? So you think it's a weekend job. It turns into a year. There are budgets. There is, you know, there's an economy around all this, mm-hmm. right? And if your show is supposed to be for a weekend or for however long and it winds up stretching for a year... How do you just plausibly plan? You know, how do you stretch those dollars without giving away your trade secrets? No, that that show was an anomaly um, in many ways. There's certainly a lot to be learned from what we went through in producing that and ultimately bringing it to the screen. But it was so anomalous, honestly, like because of Demi Moore's involvement and because of Amanda, um, who was the host of the show, as well as the director and... So there were just a lot of different moving pieces around with that. And we had such a stripped down crew that we brought Dane on. And this is, you know, a lesson for anyone who's in really any business, but certainly a project oriented business, that when somebody comes on for a three day gig and then you can't imagine them leaving, you find a way to keep them. You just don't let them walk out the door because it becomes a necessity, not not a wish. 
Um, and that was the case with Dane. And, you know, in a very entrepreneurial way, Dane just started growing the company with me. It was, I think there's another lesson in that that's incredibly valuable that was something that I did at Radical and then saw in Dane as we started working together. There are many people who want to start on the first day and say, what is my title and what is my pay and what is my role and who do I report to? And and as we become a larger company, we do have to have those conversations earlier on. But when you walk into a company that is really two people sitting in a 12 by 12 office, that entrepreneurial spirit of, I mean, I remember this vividly, that I had a meeting with David Gelb, um, that David had directed Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, there was an opportunity to, <clears throat> to have this television conversation, you know, what would a TV show, you know, version of that type of storytelling look like? Um, so there was that opportunity at Netflix. David and I walked in and had that conversation and, you know, almost instantly we were having very real negotiations about what a six episode order for this first unscripted series would be. Or those food webisodes. For the food webisodes, cooking webisodes, exactly. Um, I remember coming back from the meeting with David, just sort of saying out loud to the room, yeah, we had this thing. I think, you know, he wants to do Planet Earth for food. That was the brief that David gave me. It was the best answer to a question that has ever been given, right? Planet Earth for food which is not really what chef's table is, but it was enough to get us started. Um, The next day I came in and there was a budget on my desk that Dane had made. Dane wasn't working on in development for us. He wasn't head of production yet. He wasn't any of those things. He was just working on something and heard that conversation and knows that to get from here to there, what, what are the things that need to fill in that straight line path? Well, you need a budget. So here's a budget. Let's walk. Let's, let's work from that. But that's, but yeah. chef's table doesn't exist without that because, you know, you have meetings and you walk away. Yeah. He wants to do planet earth for food. And by the way, at that time, because Netflix was in such early development stages of themselves, they, there was no in-house production for them. We had a bond. We had a completion bond for season one of chef's table because they didn't, they couldn't just hand us a few million bucks and they, there wasn't even anyone to send a call sheet to at Netflix. So it was like, okay, who's going to oversee them as they shoot on four continents? Dane knew how to nav- navigate that terrain as well from his film background and, you know, working in independent film. And so Dane just willed that show to happen. Um, we were, as I think I said already, we, we had done a lot of promo work um, early on in Boardwalk's um, development. We, had, we did a lot of work for AMC. We did a lot of just sit-down, interview, promo kind of work. We were doing what was a massive campaign for us for the end of Mad Men. We had done a lot of work with Mad Men through the years. Mad Men was going off air. AMC came to us and said, let's interview everybody who loves Mad Men, fans and influencers and whatnot. And it was... It's a big show. It was, it was, it was a big show for them. And, and the farewell campaign that we were producing for them was a big deal for us in our growth as a company. And we were doing Chef's Table, which was called Chef's Story at the time. But we were doing Chef's Table season one at that time. And I remember saying to Dane, don't be so distracted by this food show. You know, our bread and butter is this AMC business. And, you know, I could not have been more wrong. But Dane really willed that to happen, partially because he saw something in it 
that not many people saw and partially because I think he just really wanted to travel around the world and eat great food. But but that's fair too. But that's Well, I think there's a couple of great nuggets in that. Number one, how do you add value? You know, a lot of people listen to this podcast. We talk about that all the time. That's our everyday yes. conversation. Exactly. A lot of people can do the job. Hope you know, I think at a baseline, hopefully you're a good person who wants to work hard, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, adding value, finding a way to make things better. And by the way, that we I just had that meeting before you before we started. It's the core of what we do now. It is absolutely who we are and what we do. So it's it's simple, right? I'll give you all our secrets. So number one, we do not separate creative from production here. So many companies exist in this way where a network will call you and say, uh, can you give me a budget for the show that we're about to do? Or we need to make this change to the budget, what have you, right? To have a budget conversation with the budget guy or gal, as the case may be. We refuse to do that for anyone. Meaning, if you want to have a budget conversation, it is a creative conversation and it is a scheduling conversation. A budget, a calendar, and a creative brief can never be separated. I will not have a creative conversation with a network without talking, because if you want to change one, the other two have to change. So those things link. So Dane, for as much as he is head of operations and basically makes the world go around here, he is never excluded. In fact, he is almost always included in all of the creative conversations because creative is logistics and logistics is creative. Can't be separated. Um, The other thing that we preach here is how do we add value here? We know who we are. Dane knows who he is. I know who I am. And all the wonderful people here know who they are. And we as an organization, as a company, know who we are. But still, every project needs something very, very different. And so we always ask ourselves out loud, how are we adding value here? How are we wanted? Because the worst thing that can happen is when you're working with a showrunner who needs something over here and isn't getting that and doesn't need something over here and that's all you're trying to give them. You know, you, you can't receive what you don't have a receptacle for. And so we talk about that an awful lot. And our roles, show to show, project to project, you know, now that we're working on features, feature to feature, is fundamentally different. It's, it's almost funny if you, if you talk to different showrunners who we work with, some of them would say, oh, you know, Boardwalk is the best creative partner possible. And, you know, we worked with every one of their DPs and every one of their editors and Andrew's in the edit room until one o'clock in the morning. And it's so great to have them. And other partners of us would say they're wonderful production support. Wow, they figure out logistics for us in a way that we never... I mean, we work with Greg Whiteley on Last Chance U, um, another show that we're not announcing, and and Cheer, right? I mean, Cheer is... Can we curse on this thing? Uh, Please. Cheer is the biggest... Cheer is the biggest fucking thing that's ever happened to us. And I think, you know, excluding, like, murder shows like in the unscripted it's a huge huge transformational show i believe that's amazing for us um we met greg whiteley after he had done season one of last chance you he had worked with a production company that i never named because i don't know them and i i i'm sure they're all wonderful people but the experience of making that show they were speaking different languages greg whiteley documentary film director who had done you know, a lot of work among it, the MIT 
uh, film that you know I had seen on Netflix that I was a big fan of. Um, working with what I imagined was more of a TV company. It's different languages. It's different things. So I'm sitting at home watching Last Chance You as a fan, and then we get a call from friends at Netflix saying, you know, let's have this conversation. When I met Greg that first time, he said, season one of Last Chance You was great, but I making it was kind of hellish, and I don't know how we would go back and do it again. And we very simply said to him, what if you were making an eight-hour documentary instead of a TV show? We're not making a TV show. We're making an eight-hour documentary, and you could go about it no different than you would go about making MIT or whatever documentary feature you were making. And then we'll figure out where the hour breaks go. And that seemed to be a massively, you know, transformational idea from where they had been to where they're going. Now, I bring it up because the value that Greg Whiteley needed from us and from me was not to frame fuck episode four of Last Chance You. It was to let him do what he does so well. And so Cheer, which we developed differently with him and obviously, you know, we're a part of from day one, but I gave my notes on the first episode and, you know, I, I'm really proud of some of the notes that I, that I offered up early in that process and, and hopefully some of them were foundational and I, I really feel good about the contribution creatively that I made to that show. But that was far more of a logistical bear to wrestle and a legal bear to wrestle and all of the support that I, I like to think Greg really needed to bring that show, which he did so beautifully over the finish line without being distracted by the things that Dane and I were dealing with in real time. Well, and that's where you added value, right? right? You understood what your role was on that specific project and it can be different every time. And that has to feel okay to us, right? Like I am just as proud to, of that show, not just because it's such a big hit, but I'm just as proud of what we brought to that show as I am of, I mean, chef's table, I've directed six episodes of it myself. Like, I'm so intimately involved in the creative of that show and so at arm's length from the day-to-day creative on a show like Cheer, but for me, it's not an ego blow. It's actually an ego boost. Um, And I think that that's what makes, that's part of what makes this place special because we just, we confidently contribute when we can. Bespoke has to be unique for every customer. So that's what we do. And it's not the easiest thing to do. It's certainly not the easy route. Templatizing something is far easier than saying each project that comes through the door requires its own creative, its own production methodology. It won't always fit into the same box. But, you know, that's what we talk to our staff about all the time. Everybody needs something different from us. And just because the last project needed X or Y doesn't mean this one's going to need the same thing. When we were, you know, there was a phase where... Boardwalk existed, but Dane and I were sort of hopping around together and making shows with other partners, right? We did this together and we did this separately, but I remember one specific show that I was working on. I hired the DP. We did like two days of camera tests. We were so excited about this unique look that we were going to bring to the show. And, you know, we were all fired up. And then the production company that we were working with were like, oh, yeah, 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 that's great. We have these cameras. And so these are the ones that you'll use. And they like, like blew off the dust. And it was devastating. It was heartbreaking. 
And honestly, our show never, at least for me personally, we never recovered from that because it was just such a clear message of the creative is not leading this conversation. It is a business decision and we invested in these cameras. So let's take out the tapes that they shoot on and put them on someone's shoulder and shoot the show. And it was, it was demoralizing. So we don't, we're not in the camera business here. We, 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 we never, we start every show with a clean piece of paper saying, what are the needs of this show and how can we How do best... we add value? Yeah. It's interesting. You really hit it on the head. Well, so it seems like, you know, I think in this entire world, not even specific to the television industry, you got Walmart and you have boutiques. And those are kind of your two ways of being successful. In the middle, you're neither fish nor fowl. And I think you're going to have a hard time. Clearly, you've gone the boutique route, but in that sort of art versus commerce conversation, there's still commerce, right? And so many of the unscripted companies, legacy companies that wound up selling for these crazy multiples, not to say that that's ultimately your goal, but it was based on scale and it was based on all these things that you're not. So I love the spirit of what you're talking about. What's the secret that you can share to making that a sustainable business, right? Because the margins are tough. I'll let you know when we figure it yeah. out. Right? Do you have everyone, everyone bitches about the same things. Oh my God, the networks, the scrutiny, right? You talk about that partner that made you use those dusty old cameras. You could have substituted Network X for forcing you, you know, right? No, this is how we do it. This is your music house, nothing curated, da 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 da. How are you able, I mean, really against the tides? I, I, sorry, and going back even further, you know, the base, the thesis of this company, this is what we're good at. There will be a market for it. The pendulum will swing back. Frankly, it wasn't about swinging back. The pendulum will swing in this direction. How could you, I mean, wow, it has swung. Well, so- and we had a part in swinging it, right? Which is crazy to think about. Um, that conversation when I said quality will never go out of style and the pendulum will swing and all of that, I think Dane and I imagined if we could do three shows a year, in our little footprint at that point, we'd be really, really happy. We'd each get to make some money. We get to make stuff that we're proud of. And that was sort of the goal. So it's not that, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Dane, but I never had this like massive, I always just, I interviewed Howard Schultz once for um, an Iconoclast episode. And we talked about the founding of Starbucks. And he said, I just wanted to build a company that I wanted to work at and that my dad never got the chance to work at. And so that really was the guiding principle. I loved the company I worked for. Radical Media and John Kamen and Frank Sherma, who I worked for coming up, were the greatest mentors and got it pretty right. Certainly coming out of the commercial business that they were more prominently in and heading into the content business, I just wanted to build, and I think we talked about it, and, and we worked with them you know, for years, but we just wanted to build our version of that. Mm-hmm. And then things happen, right? We made, Chef's Table was Netflix's first unscripted original. The partners at Netflix, certainly early on, but you know, in a large way still today, are not TV people. They're storyteller people. So Lisa Nishimura and Adam Del Deo, who were our execs, who were our execs originally on Chef's Table, they weren't coming from some, you know, cable company to work with us. They're filmmakers, they're they're storytellers. And so we got spoiled by that. Then we started to do more work with them. Then Netflix 
became the thing that everybody was chasing. And so we have the luxury now, as we work with other partners, <clears throat> of having a little bit of that secret, you know, pixie dust to sprinkle on it so that when we say, this is how we do it, there's a respect that I think we've gained. And quite honestly, that I, I, I hope that we've earned to say, we probably do things differently than the other companies that you deal with, but that's how we got to this thing that you want from us. So, yeah, I mean, it's your reputation precedes you and you hope that when making that call, they will respect it. Having worked at many networks, that doesn't mean that they will. No. <laughs> but, but you hope that they would. But we've, we've, and the landscape is changing so dramatically. I mean, we're in a world now where, um, you know, there's a different buyer online every few months between the streamers and the Quibbies of the world and HBO Maxes and Peacocks and, every, you know, everybody else, Disney Plus, we have a, a show with now. Like, everybody's coming online and everybody's finding their footing. And I think that it's it's great luck, but it's also, I think, as you're saying, our reputation does precede us a little bit. And so there's a trust that exists when we walk in the door to say, these guys may be saying things that sound a little crazy to us, but the results are there. But we, yeah. There's also not a lot of people that actually make things. So I, there's a lot of people you said earlier, you know, a lot of people talk about. You could finish that sentence with any number of really smart, successful producers who are great at selling. But a lot of those people don't actually physically execute the product. And that was one of the niches that. Boardwalk realized pretty quickly was part of our secret sauce. So we were really good at process and we we're really good at execution. It just so happened that the business went in a way where companies that were highly successful executing became high, highly desirable because as all of these larger entities were buying so much content concurrently, they had to park it at places that they could trust to do it well. And so we found ourselves very quickly in the quality control business. And it, it became a very concerted effort to know that as we added the scale that you're talking about, which is just required to grow and it's just required to be sustainable, as we added that, every step to add that, I think, was pretty well measured against what we could sustain. Because if you got too big for your britches, then someone's getting short shift, whether it's the network or the creative on the show or the show itself. So it's it's not easy. It's definitely, I think, the most difficult thing we wrestle with um, is how to balance that and how to, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Everybody wants everything immediately. There's immediacy to everything. There's no time for process anymore, which is unfortunate, but we're very process oriented. We really try to slow things down and say, let's do the hard work at the inception point so that we're setting ourselves up for success eight months later. Our shows have slightly bigger budgets than what well, certainly than what reality shows were. But, you know, we have slightly bigger budgets. We have very long runs. Yeah, they're 18 months. So... If you come, you know, start a show with us, you're not in and out in six months. You're, you're going to be here for a year to a year and a half. So let's really slow down. There is more time than it seems like. Let's put a process in place. Let's really lay a firm foundation here so that we're not kicking ourselves a year from now. Yeah, I have friends who are ER doctors who have told me the same thing. 
people don't come in. It's not that life or death, you know, like you're watching a procedural. Yeah. There's always time to slow down. I've also, and I've shared on the podcast before, third act problems are first and second act problems. Totally. So you're very wise to approach it that way. All right, let's go back to sort of the pivot point for this company, right? It sounds like 2010, you had this thesis, you're working, you're taking, how he says that, you're taking whatever you know, jobs come your way that make sense for you, promotional campaigns, we did, whatnot. We did a lot of promo campaigns. We did, um, so Michael Bloom, who's an exec that we love, um, and a friend. Yes, um, and a Santa Monica guy. And a close, Santa Monica guy. Uh, he was at Fox Sports 1 at the time. He was starting original programming for this new sports cable network. I've never had this explicit conversation with him, but I always assumed that ESPN was doing 30 for 30s. Why don't we, Fox Sports 1, be doing series instead of one-offs? We did four shows for Fox Sports 1 in their first two years, uh, including being Mike Tyson, which was something that was underviewed because it was part of their launch and just... You know, it was very hard to find FS1 at that time. But we're really proud of being Mike Tyson. We loved that show. We did that with Asylum, uh, Steve Michaels. Um, and we were really, really proud of that show. And we did a show called Back of the Shop. And we did a show called The Pecos League. And then we did a show called Road to the Show. Um, that got us doing it. Even if we weren't on the front pages of newspapers and we weren't pulling numbers and... Nobody we learned each other. Exactly. That was the other thing. Because exactly. Andrew was directing shows and I was line producing them. That's how this started. And in some ways, that's how, you know, CEO, COO versions yeah. of this exist now in a much larger organization. Is totally. There's a right and a left brain and that complement has always been there. And in, I guess in the most candid way, we also don't step on each other's goals and aspirations there's a really strong synergy there and that i have to chalk up is half of how we're all still here yeah because it just is so synergetic like we really do complement each other very well but, but to your point of like scale right so how do you scale bespoke how do you scale couture right we that's what we wrestle with um I wrestle with it from a sales standpoint more than a uh, manufacturing standpoint, so to speak. Meaning there was one week that we pitched for whatever it worked out, travel and people in town and just being able to schedule it. We pitched Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, different shows on that week, which for most production companies in town is normal. We're selling bespoke. We're selling unique. We're selling special. We're selling couture. All of those words that you could you know, come up with. So when I sit with a buyer, when Jordy uh, Wynn, who's our uh, EVP in charge of creative with us, um, when we sit with a buyer on a Tuesday and say, I got something really special for you. <coughs> I can't come back the next day and say it again. And I certainly can't come back the day after that and say it a third time. Like, it's just, it's just bullshit. And that's not actually how we think of it. It's just that week was the way that was all scheduled. But we really did feel like all of the, each of those projects was special. And so it didn't get its light. It didn't get its fair shot. So we spent an awful lot of time from a sales standpoint, timing out when we're taking shows because it does have to feel like we have a secret and we're about to share that secret with you. Um, from a manufacturing standpoint, from a production standpoint, 
because we empower showrunners and we empower line producers and because we are supporting and curating and doing all of the things that we hope people are enjoying as they come here, that scalability is not as difficult, I don't believe. I mean, if you asked a lot of the staff producers, people here, they would say there could be six more of me and we'd still be stretched too thin. Like there is that reality uh, of just bandwidth and people working their asses off here. Um, but it's also that, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make entertainment. We, I am a TV producer first and foremost. I am not guy who sat in the back of movie theaters watching, you know, six hour black and white documentaries. Like I'm just not that guy. I, we just are trying to tell documentary stories for broad audiences. And so from a production standpoint, what ends up happening is we assemble teams for these shows. They come here and feel, I hope, we hope, free to do the thing that they've always wanted to do. Supported. Supported. There's no cover your ass mentality. None of that. When we start to see an email from somebody that feels like a CYA email, we'll just go over to them and say, nobody's getting in trouble here. Nobody yells. Nobody's being thrown under the bus. So you don't have to do that. You could just be free of that. Same thing happens in an edit. The first time we watched a cut of um, the Goop Lab. Oh, it's far edgier from a topic standpoint, but from a format standpoint, it's as close as we've come to, you know, something that could be on E. Sure, I haven't seen too many people dropping, you know, hallucinogenics on E. But <laughs> again, content-wise, yeah. certainly content-wise, it's edgier. But structure. the structure of it and the the way it was shot and the budget oh. at which it was yeah. shot and and produced, like. Um, there were editors when we first started looking at the cuts you just free the editors of things where and the psychedelic episode is an example it was the first episode we saw and um the first cut we saw every time it went from gwyneth sitting on the couch with elise talking about psychedelics to then cut to them laying on the floor in a house in jamaica doing psychedelics they kept showing the exterior of the house because that's what you do right and I remember saying, yeah, we don't, we don't need to do that. Nobody has told us here that we need to do that. Is anyone confused? Any, anyone in the room? There are eight people in the room. Is there anyone confused where the laying on the floor tripping on mushrooms is happening? Everyone's like, no, no, no. That's, we, we know where that is. And it's like, okay, no more of those exterior shots. We know where we are. And we don't have to do an exterior shot of the goop offices when we go back to the goop offices. And we also don't need to sting out the music with a cymbal flurry at the end of it. Like, let's release ourselves of all of that. And just do it the way we want to do it. And if somebody tells us along the way that we've fucked up, like, we can always adjust, but let's start from a place of how we would want it to be and then work from there. There's a breath that happens. There's a, there's a release. There's a, re- a relief that happens where everybody now is working so hard. They're free to do the thing that they've wanted to do. They come in earlier. They stay later. They care. You can't pay people to care. You can just create an environment where they do care. And, and then, then they stay. And then they stay. Then, now they're putting out great work. And it's being seen. And Boardwalk is getting credit for it. And people want to do more work with us. And they want to do more work with us. And so that's how the scale happens. By the people who are making the shows feeling like, oh, this is... 
how I've wanted to do this and where I've wanted to work. Yeah, so, the money is just a bribe, I always say, right? right? I mean, we need it, clearly, to live in a city like Los Angeles. You want to be valued and paid for your work. But you should want to do that regardless of your rate if you in an utopic sort of society. And maybe you guys have created that here. We get the nicest notes, like handwritten notes from people who are wrapping shows. Maybe that happens everywhere and I'm just... It really doesn't, that. though. That's the thing. I mean, we have friends on all sides of the aisle, and it doesn't. This is a very unique place, and we're very proud of that. And we hold on to that. I think any time, you know, you get caught up in things all the time. So any time you can start sensing you're, you're veering off that course of process-oriented, you know, cultural respect for a place that, you know, really has people's back and expects excellence, but has got their back. Anytime you start pivoting off of that, it's real quick to come back to where you were because that other route is no fun. And by the way, we have shitty days. We get shitty notes. We have, you know, frustrations. There's never enough budget. There's never enough people to do the work that you want to do. Like, it's not some Pollyannish situation here. Some no, utopian production company, but... In the end, I think people are really proud of the work. And so it, it it just breeds a different energy. And that energy is a self-feeding loop in like the greatest way. So what happened January 1 of 2015? Yeah. Because you're on your way. <coughs> January 1 of 2016. Oh, 2016. Guess, right? My mistake. Yeah. Yes. January After 1... making a murder. If right. I'm right. I think yes. I'm right. So Dane correctly identified chef's table not the amc promo this is this is the future right here that's a lot of credit but yeah so i'll take it hats off he should, he, he should get i was like i was like don't be distracted <laughs> i remember the call you were in new york yeah so good thing you you ignored him you know made that decision and you said you felt different on january 1 16 everyone watched making a murderer what next i mean you know yes espn was making 30 for 30s I mean, I guess Netflix probably most clearly, right? They opened the floodgates. Yeah, it was that it, was the moment, right there. There was a surreal um, night that I will never forget, which was, and and I, I condense it into like one story, but it happened over several weeks. But um, Brian McGinn, who uh, is our one of our other partners on Chef's Table, and really is the engine of that show in many ways. He is curating the chefs, certainly with David and with all of us. But Brian is is in many ways, the unsung hero of that show. Um, we went back to Netflix, as I recall, because we, you know, again, they're not a, they're not a network and they're not TV buyers. So we certainly then we did these six episodes. They performed well. Everybody was really happy. And the onus was on us to sort of go back to them and say, if you want more, we should pick the chefs now because we'll want to shoot in this season and get it to you delivered by, you know, so it was Brian and Dane going back to them saying, you know, here are the six more chefs that we'd like to do for season two. And they sort of came back and said, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, are there six more that you would want to do? And then we went back and said, here are the 12 chefs that we would want to do for season two. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, are there any in France that you would also want to do? And then we went back and said, here are the 16 chefs that we would want to do for the next cycle, next season of Chef's Table. And they said, okay, great. 
And a 16-up order, even today, is unprecedented. I mean, in this space, that's very rare that that many... And it's, it's incredibly beneficial to the economics of the show, but it's rare that that happens. And that was a 23-month calendar. Yeah. So we then looked at each other and said, so we're in business for two years. Why 23? You should have just gone 24. Right? <laughs> Not, you don't know Dane if you think that they're round numbers. But yeah, it, it, everything changed for us. I remember I had... That's when it moved, really, to then starting to think about this as a corporation, like a company. Now that we're was a company. Less it was us it, making things and more, okay, now there's a back office. Now there's business affairs. Now there's finance. And now the funny have... thing is, sorry to interrupt, but the funny thing is, is that then everybody starts to come at you yeah. and say... Let us partner with us and we'll do the back office. You don't want to worry about the back office. Let us do the insurance and the bookkeeping and the accounting and all that stuff that you don't want to have to deal with because you just want to make the shows. And what we realized is as soon as you start to peel some of that away to how other people do it, we're no longer our company. Our production accounting is done just a little differently than everybody else does it. And that speaks to why everything is successful, I think, in the way that it is. It's, it's Everything is that way. <coughs> everything candid, is just a little different. Every conversation he has with a new hire, some new role, and that's also worth noting, but our expansion is very much in kind. So a lot of these companies get ahead of their skis. Huge overhead, way too many people. They don't have the volume, and so they can't support, it. support yeah. it. So we've always been very deliberate. You know, people are on shows, and at some point they can't be on the show because they're servicing the larger apparatus, and then they go on staff. But, like, that transition takes a minute. And so as that grows, every single role, every division, every vertical, you know, everybody who's sort of evolved to be part of this venture on staff mm-hmm has very much grown out of a specific need. And it's it's hilarious because we'll sit and have the conversation and my piece of it is usually the nuts and bolts and sort of some of the more traditional elements of what that will be. And his instinct right off the bat is to start with, you're not actually gonna do this job as the world calls it. Our version of head of current, for instance, yeah. is not what most TV companies have as a head of current. It's far more producerial. And so, so almost need, everything, finance, account, like every single vertical, if I think about it, you started from a slightly yeah, pivoted. It's always just a little different and it makes it a little bit harder in that foundation laying stage. But, but it's worked. It's unique and it's special and everybody feels, I think, a little bit different. Well, your shows are more curated. Your product is more curated. Why wouldn't your staff and your hires? I mean, it all lines up. And the topics of the things you cover, right? You mentioned sort of what reality shows, I'm making air quotes, look like. And not in every instance, but certainly a lot of those shows were maybe could be looked at as lowest common denominator type people, maybe a little bit of point and laugh. I would be hard pressed to find even any smidge of that type of show in any of the posters on these walls. You know, your cheer you know, chef's table, last chance shoot, you're talking about people who are the best at what they do and you're covering them in the best possible way. That was, you know, I, I looked to my mom, I sat next to my mom at our premiere of season two of chef's table um, at Tribeca. Was it season two? Maybe it was season one. It was season one, actually. I am the farthest thing from a foodie. The fact that 
I have gone on. You to, were. I was. I, I've learned. I, I've learned to appreciate a good meal. Um, but at the inception point of that, the fact that I'm a James Beard winning, you know, culinary food, you know, director or what have you, producer, is silly. And I remember I leaned over to my mom at the end of the Dan Barber episode, so it was season one, and I said, I don't know how this makes sense that we made this, but it just does. And she said, you tell stories about people who are the best at what they do. And I never had seen that umbrella. I had done shows about my Broadway show friends and shows about Mike Tyson and shows about, I mean, this company could have easily been a sports company, to be honest. Like we love sports. We love sports storytelling. It, it, it could have been any number of things, but you, you, you've tapped into a couple of things here that are really core to our DNA, which is how do we add value and how do we shine a light on people who are the best at what they're doing? Well, the broken clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> I might cut this out soon. But, you know, I guess uh, last question, and we'll start. Well, it's not the last question, but as we sort of dovetail to the end of this episode, a big part of this is because the floodgates opened at Netflix and you were the ones who already were in the club and obviously they came to you and loved your work and all that kind of stuff. Does this exist this company exists in this way without a Netflix? I mean, is there a broadcast or a traditional TV no. version of what you do? No, we'd be, we'd, we'd, look, there are people out there who do not have the Netflix business that we have who are, you know, there are a handful of companies who do really premium work and that we respect. And, and some of them have relationships with CNN and some of them have relationships with Amazon. And so like, there are, there are pockets of places that are doing wonderful work that we're quite honestly jealous of. Um, this company would not be what it is without the relationship that we have with Netflix. Um, but I like to think that if there were no Netflix, then we'd be sitting down with the execs at, I don't know, A&E and FX and, and somewhere else saying, what's pre and we still have those conversations, what's premium for you? So we know what a premium doc series looks like at Netflix. But that's not even all that we're doing, right? The Goop Lab is something a little bit different for them. And we have a show uh, coming out with them that is a little bit off of that very high-end, um, you know, cinematic documentary work. But we love having conversations with different buyers to say, okay, Chef's Table could never, you're a cable network. If Chef's Table were on Thursday night at eight o'clock, it would have been over in six weeks. Nobody would have found it. That's not what success looks like for you. But we do what we do. How, what does premium look like for you? How can, we, how can we make something special that you could be proud of, that you could put a, a whole lot of support behind? And that's, you know, that's, so, so if there were no Netflix, I don't think we'd be as big as we are. Maybe but, not as fast, yeah. But we'd still be just, you know, trying to make documentary entertainment for broad audiences. And AMC would still need those promos. Heck yeah. You know, Walking Dead may end, you know, eventually and, and you know, we they'll, were, they'll call you. We did some Look, of those. We were at Sundance, you know, with a film that we produced and for obvious reasons, because of the relationship they have with Sundance Channel, Sundance Film Festival, AMC has a huge footprint there. And there were a lot of old friends there that it was great to see and you know nice to be a big shot who's directing a movie at Sundance but you know we're all just still doing what we're doing and we're all just I, I did I did an iconoclast episode with Norman Lear same episode as the Howard Schultz one and 
I never remember if it ended up in the cut or not, but I remember we were driving to NBC. Norman was in the back seat. We were checking in at security at the old NBC studios, which are no longer that. But we were checking in at security, and you could see the peacock in the background out the window. Norman's, like, giving his driver's license to get on the lot. And he says to me, yeah, still plugging away at the TV business. <laughs> and so we're all just still plugging away at the TV business. And it looks different, and we press play on things now instead of, you know, finding it on at, at 9 o'clock. But it's, you know, we're just telling stories. All right. So we'll end this episode as, as I end every episode, which is with advice to your younger self. Let's start with you, Dane, 25 years old. What would you tell yourself if you had a DeLorean? Could fly back. Oh, I wish I had a DeLorean. <laughs> you will. If you want it. That's a good question. At least you know what to get him for his next birthday. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, I know because it's it's interesting because the advice I, I most often give, and maybe the advice I would I would tell myself. I said it earlier, you know, work gets work in this business. Keep your head down, do the work. That has been a mantra for me forever. I think so many people get caught up in the shiny objects and the announcements. We don't announce anything here. It's actually our best friend. It, it really is. By the time a show comes out, you know, we're a year into making the next one. So... The work getting work concept, I, it humbles me and it centralizes me. And no matter how big this place gets or how great the shows or, you know, some of these shows are we're so lucky to have an awful lot of notoriety around now. No matter any of that, if I just come back to the fact that at the end of the day, we're going to come back in the next day after the premiere, what's next? We say that to each other all the time great take the moment to celebrate that's important but what's next we're old west wing fans so you know what's next what's next that's that's the that's the advice is don't chase don't chase the shininess because that shininess changes so fast and so readily and i think i like to think that you know yes we were lucky at a byproduct of a, a massive company and Netflix was evolving the same time we were and yes we've been really lucky with timing that what we were really passionate about making happened to be what the rest of the world wanted as well that thing's that's great that's good for business but staying humble and focusing on what we were doing like that's I, don't, I think that's the best advice I could impart yeah and my, I think my thing is related to that so Jordy went uh one of our EVPs what you know one of our partners here before he worked here, years before he worked here, around the time that I was 25, his dad, we were, I don't know, we were, I don't know why I was alone with his dad, but his dad has since passed away, but he gave me this advice at the time that I needed it, which was, you know, he said, what are you going to be? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to do this and this is going to lead to this. And then in five years, that'll lead to this and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, that is not how life works. You do what's in front of you. And you do the shit out of it. And then you do the next thing. I think that we are so caught up in 
this will lead to this opportunity and if I have this job, like it's so easy to do that. And I think young people certainly do that. Not just young people today, young people always, right? We, we always want to lay out this plan. This project doesn't really make sense for what I want to ultimately accomplish. It all adds up and it all, you know, adds to the experience that you bring to the next project. So the Bravo show that, you know, went sideways for me, still I learned an awful lot on that show. Um, there are plenty of things that I've been fired from in the past, like plenty of things that didn't fit, plenty of things that were like, oh, why am I doing this? Why are we doing this $60,000, under budgeted, no one's ever going to see it. Why are we even doing this? Because we learned something there. So, so I guess the lesson for the 25-year-old is just what Greg Wynn said to me, do what's in front of you, do the shit out of it, and then do the next thing. Well, I love it. Let's get back to doing. Yeah. I promise, last question. I promise this is it, and I'm out of your hair. The greatest challenge ever, true or false, making a show with your wife? 100%. Greatest challenge ever. Yeah, so it sounds like you're signing up for that again. <laughs> we've, we've talked about it multiple times. Yeah, she wasn't his it. wife when they made the first show together. Sure. But there was that night where we met... Um, at a restaurant to like go over budgets and have like a very real business conversation. And I was sitting with Elise and Dane. It was just the three of us. And I looked at them and I said, I'm going to go because I have this thing that I have to go. The drinks hadn't even showed up. And I just was like, I gotta, I gotta, I actually have this other thing that I have to do. So you guys figure this out and just let me know how it works out. And it, I guess it worked The out. context is important. My <laughs> wife is a creative and I am, you know, mostly logistics. So the two of us were tasked with, with figuring know, something making out. a show together. So that's always a fun pairing. Well, <laughs> but now you're making a life together. Yeah, exactly. So beautiful. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. Keep up all the great Thank work. Thank you so much. Thanks. My pleasure. So there you have it. The true story of Boardwalk Pictures. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to my guests, Dane Lilligard and Andrew Freed, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.